0: Full disclosure,
1: I'm Robin Farzan. Everything. everything we do starts with the concept of we're effectively educators. Hey, if you want to do it yourself, it takes a little bit of work and it takes a lot of discipline and you have to understand what's going on and all the distractions that will lead you astray. Hey, one of the fortunate byproducts of the
0: financial crisis was the rise of that voice. That would be Barry Ritholtz, wealth manager, columnist, perhaps the most accosted man on the Long Island Railroad. (laughs) He's all over radio and TV. You've read him in the Washington Post and on Bloomberg. His asset management shop is growing like a fungus. You know, Barry, can't get enough of your love. Stay with us. Full disclosure is made possible by the support of Elwood Thompson's, the best market in Virginia at the very top of Carytown. You'll see me on Indian Wednesdays, the hot bar breakfast buffet with its vegan biscuit, uh, the great coffee. I just downed a a cold brew, and it has me uh, spastic but feeling really optimistic. They are at ElwoodThompson's.com and at the corner of Elwood and Thompson Streets, hence the name. Visit them. Joining us from Midtown Manhattan at NPR's New York City studio is none other than Barry Ritholtz, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management. How are you, sir? Very good. Thank you so much for having me, Robin. You know what? While while I did flag the LIRR in the morning, I used to see you come in gloriously at either of those those train stations. And I got to ask you, uh, when the little old lady from, let's say, M- Mineola comes up to you and says, I- I've seen you on TV. Tell me about the Bitcoin. What do you say in
1: 30 seconds? <laughs> I'm sorry. You have me confused with somebody else.
0: Everybody is That's talking. A- it's a meaning of life question, and I'm sure you're rolling your eyes, and you've tried to rehearse your script every morning on that train ride. It's, it's a very hard thing to explain to anybody, much less what's gone on in a month and a half, and it's fallen 55%.
1: Yeah, I'll tell you what's really funny is my train line. Uh, I come in from the Oyster Bay train line, which is far less random than some of the other more populated train lines. So it, it is literally the same group of people sitting together on the train. I, I you know, it's it's rare that someone comes up to me that I'm not familiar with. But the last time you saw me get accosted was in Grand Central Station. I avoid Penn Station. I come into Grand Central Station because it's so much nicer and you're occasionally, um, some people occasionally recognize you. That is why I so totally prefer radio over television. There's a little uh, anonymity with radio. You You can interact with people and yet still retain a little privacy. But you, you exude, your pores exude alpha. Even
0: if I didn't know who you were, I'd see it was like that man is portable alpha right there. So get back to uh- <laughs> Bitcoin. What the heck is Bitcoin? I've never talked about it on the show. I've been meaning to throw this meaning of life question at you. You used to be kind enough to take my calls when I lived in, in New York. We'd go out and, you know, have lunch or something and I'd bounce these these themes and ideas and, and show conceits off you and I'm
1: curious to see what you think. So Bitcoin is kind of a wacky story. There's a really fascinating technology that underlines it, which is the blockchain, which is a technology-based software way of making a series of transactions um, take place that are verifiable, and there's a continual chain, and it's it's somewhat self-validating. Um, originally, the people behind Bitcoin liked the idea that it was independent of the government or the Federal Reserve. And it was it was sort of a little bit of a gold bug. Hey, we're not involved with um, fiat currency or any of that. And as these things are wont to do, it got way out of hand. It ran from a couple of pennies to a couple of hundred bucks, which normally would be a re- fantastic return. And then it ran up to almost $20,000. And as of the recording of this, it's 8,000 and change. It's It's been cut by more than half. Um, when you look at something that's sort of a currency, sort of a commodity, sort of none of the above, it's really challenging to place a value on it. I think the the current overly optimistic expectations are, hey, there's only going to be 21 million bitcoins made, uh, and therefore that scarcity will create value. but hey, when you buy a bond, you're buying a stream of um, interest payments, namely the yield backed by the government. Uh, When you buy a stock, you're buying a piece of a company and a discounted cash flow, perhaps a dividend. Uh, When you're buying a Bitcoin, it's hard to say exactly what you're buying. And there are certainly elements of uh, a speculative mania with this. Obviously, anything that goes up 4,000% and then gets cut in half and half again, uh, that very much looks like a a mania. You know, true story. Just before Christmas, I had a
0: sushi lunch with a fund manager friend. And as they're bringing the meal, and and, after they took our order, I I just brought up Bitcoin. I mean, the, the mania was in full throttle back then. And I kid you not, the waiter comes back and starts lecturing us about Ethereum, um, right. with this kind of this 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 certainty to him, like this this, you know, guys, you have no idea how big this is gonna be. And I didn't so want to be you... a, I didn't want to be an idiot, I don't wanna be a cocky, you know, one of these guys who then reports that to the reform broker like, aha, contraindicator. But haven't you seen those stories? It happened to me in ninety nine at Shunley Palace in uh, New York City. It happened to what was it, Joe Kennedy with the shoe shine at Grand Central? Yes. Um there's gotta be something to be said
1: for that. A hundred percent. So a couple, you know, I'm always looking for not the specifics of this company or that, but I'm looking for the whole meta specifics. What what are people saying? What is the overall gestalt of something? Because very often there's a lot of interesting sentiment evidence contained in, in when a lot of people start looking and saying at something in the same way. And you you put a finger on it, it's that certitude, that certainty that they know what the future looks like. And go back to, you mentioned the dot-coms, go back to late 1990s. The one thing that everybody was positive about was that trees were gonna grow to the sky, that valuation didn't matter, that this was the new, new thing, and if you weren't on board the train, you're gonna get left behind. And until the collapse, remember, NASDAQ collapsed 80%. That's about the same as the the. Dow Jones collapsed during the Great Depression, up until that point where it collapses, the late participants really have a a case of FOMO. They really, there's a giant fear of missing out. And so when you see people who ignored it at 10 cents and a dollar and a hundred dollars and a thousand dollars, when they're piling in at $10,000, you have to wonder what motivated them to do this. And it's clearly not Rational, thoughtful investing process, but it's that emotional, everybody's getting rich but me. I got to get me some. I got to get me some of that Bitcoin. The New York Times pretty much top ticked this with a amazing story on the Winklevoss brothers. uh, When I want to say Bitcoin was about eighteen or nineteen thousand when it came out. You know the plural. Basically, you
0: know the plural of Winklevoss. The Winklevoss.
1: So, so they they pretty much use gap language on
0: this show, Bear.
1: (laughs) They they pretty much made it clear that. Oh, my God, these guys who missed, you know, they kind of got screwed by Zuckerman on Facebook. Look, they're now billionaires. Theoretically, if you could get your cash out of Bitcoin, which is a whole nother issue, converting Bitcoin to actual usable dollars is really a complex Expensive, time-consuming <laughs> I love, I love how the rapper, process. I love how the rapper Fifty Cent just found you know eight million
0: dollars of Bitcoin in his cushions.
1: Right. <laughs> good luck. Good luck hitting that bid because you know there's only you know it's not like this. So here's the thing about He should be. And bonds. He should be
0: bitty cent. Is that not right?
1: Go ahead. <laughs> uh, it's not like this trades on an exchange where there's a whole bunch of regulations and requirements and and reserves that have to be if you go to to sell your bitcoin it's not necessarily like someone is waiting on the other side with a pile of cash to give it to you it is there are third parties in the middle that it's much more complex than people think and we'll find out what sort of what sort of legs it has uh, are are these are is it going to keep forking are they going to continue to be new types of coins coming up but You know, it's a fascinating study in human psychology. Forget blockchain and Bitcoin. Look at how the humans behave around the thought of getting wealthy and the thought of somebody else getting wealthy, and I gotta get into that. To me, that's what's the most fascinating thing about Bitcoin.
0: Barry, talk to me about the monster news this week. The headline we got earlier in the week on these these three kings of corporate America: Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world, the CEO and founder of Amazon, the king of retail, uh, you know, partners with the Oracle of Omaha, Warren Buffett, and Jamie Dimon, the king of Wall Street. Took exp- I don't know to put together an exploratory committee to look into potential solutions to maybe, mayhaps, perhaps disrupt healthcare. I mean, Bezos is now worth 117 billion dollars. You're talking about the original dot-com crash. This. Blows my mind. By the way, I can never, you know, he's getting such a benefit of the doubt with whatever he's doing at Amazon. It's kind of like the Amazon touch, and now that he he dares touch healthcare, which kind of has this huge disruption target on its on its back, this bullseye. Everybody, this is all. Everybody is calling me about this week.
1: I I love this story for a couple of reasons. First, let's let's start with Bezos, who when Amazon went public in 1998 wrote a letter to shareholders saying, here's what we're gonna do for the next 20 years. Don't don't hold your breath waiting for profits. He was blunt about it. That document continues to drive uh, the development of Amazon. They are very, very smart about looking at all sorts of opportunities as they come up, including Amazon Cloud Services, which has become a multi-billion dollar business. Hey, they were building this giant infrastructure anyway, someone internally reasoned. Why not make it available to people and let them uh, use the infrastructure that you know? It's like a parked car. You you have a car. You use it an hour a day. The other twenty three hours, it, sure. it sits idle. It's the same thing with their massive servers, their massive capability. Uh, kind of surprised Google didn't come up with this first. To be to be a little honest, because they're the uh, they're the same sort of metric driven technology technology oriented company. But let's hold let's hold. Amazon Cloud services aside, the collective um, employees of all three companies, um, Amazon, JP Morgan Chase, and uh, Berkshire Hathaway, are, are over, well over a million and coming up on two million employees. And as someone who runs an office with all of 22 employees, I watch my healthcare costs go up you know, 5, 6, 7% a year, which is better than a few years ago when it was going up 10, 12, 14% a year. So there's no doubt to anybody who has looked at American healthcare that it's broken. We are the only major Western style democracy, only major industrial country. That doesn't have some form of guaranteed healthcare coverage for all of our citizens. Doesn't have some sort of a single payer system. Uh, you can pick problems out from various. Uh, you could say, "Here's what's wrong with Canada's healthcare system, or the UK, or Japan, or Switzerland." But when you when you look at, by and large, how other countries' healthcare system works, the United States system is horrific. For a huge number of people now, if you're the if, if you're like um, you or I, if you're in the top 10 percent uh, of the wage earners, well, you're gonna go get a good doctor. You're gonna go to a good hospital. Your insurance is gonna cover pretty much everything. There was a wonderful story uh, that came out. It's in my weekend reads um, this Saturday called "How Not to Die in America," and it yeah, goes over. Yeah, nobody's talking about it. Uh, it. It's an astonishing, astonishing story about how horrific. Even for a healthy twenty something person, a sudden unexpected infection could ruin people's lives or you could even die because you get routed to the wrong hospital because nobody you have either crappy insurance or no insurance and nobody cares. You're just you're just a cost. Oh, that's an uncollected bill and people die. It's amazing. But if in you 20- if you
0: were to if you were to net present value this effort and it's impossible to look into the future, I mean where Uh, The the remnants of Obamacare end up in five or ten years. What do you think this effort's going to lead to? Is this going to be like a confederacy of huge companies coming in and demanding better buyer binding power? And I wonder, as as n tends toward infinity, does this then approximate something like single payer? We have doctors on the program who seem resigned to that kind of being the manifest destiny of the American
1: healthcare system. Well, that that's what every other industrial country has is a single payer because if you're going to guarantee healthcare then someone has to be there to negotiate the rates and and write the check so that always ends up as a single payer what's fascinating to me about this uh Berkshire Amazon JP Morgan look J- Jamie Dimon just came out and said he's going to stay uh at Chase JP Morgan Chase for another 5 years Bezos he he's going to run this company until his last breath, what's really fascinating and nobody has talked about is Warren Buffett, who's 89 years old, who in the most recent documentary that was on HBO kind of said, yeah, I'm kind of falling apart, everything's breaking down, it's it's a very finite lifespan. The fact that he's involved in this, I think is the clue that the purpose of this trio is not to come up with some sort of alternative healthcare system It's to create a model that either forces the US system to something better or makes the threat to the healthcare system and the insurers in particular. Hey, you guys suck. You're the worst in the world. If it was up to me, I would take all the CEOs of insurance companies and throw them in the ocean. Instead, we're gonna set up a different model. And if you guys don't find a way to get much, much better, much, much cheaper, well then we're gonna come eat your lunch because that's what Amazon has done in every market it went into. And the fact that the company has the power to scare an entire sector that way, look look what happens when they announce the purchase of Whole Foods. Groceries, retailers across the board got murdered. Murdered. Their, their you stock saw, prices fell dramatically. You saw
0: United Health. You saw the hospital operators. You saw Merck, Pfizer. Uh, you know procurement companies because it's like Jeff Bezos is coming after you, man. And you saw that picture of him at Sun Valley. You know a year or two ago, the guy's built. He's he's worth he's, 120 billion dollars. He bails out the Washington Post. He doesn't have to worry about profits there. He has Whole Foods. He has Audible. He has Zappos. I mean, this guy's like a, a, a hydra. And I wonder yeah. to that extent. I mean. You know, he doesn't do a lot of press. There is some degree of opacity in terms of what they do internally, and Wall Street gives them a long leash and a benefit of the doubt. Is there any low-hanging fruit for them in terms of— I'm curious, to, with what you're seeing is now as a business owner and, you know, the 7 or 8% a year creep up, for example, do you think that he could— Immediately disrupt prescription drug pricing or or kind of dock in the box, you know. Oh, much hour worse than that. Care.
1: What do you think's gonna happen? Yeah. Oh, much worse than that. So first, for everybody who has the various insurance companies that that took a slight fall on this announcement, just go back and look at the groceries. Just go back and look at any space that Amazon has entered. It's not. Oh, here's a little turmoil. Here's a little volatility for a week, and it's over. Brace yourself for a couple of years of pain. Why is that? Because insurance companies in the United States, health care insurance companies, are horribly run. They're filled with all sorts of overhead. They're very fat. They engage in all sorts of horrific behavior. Remember, until Obamacare killed it, rescission was a common practice of insurance companies. Oh, you have an expensive cancer and you have health care? Well, we've decided we're not going to cover you. Best of luck with the funeral. So I think Bezos for not merely a business purpose but I think as a, uh, a little noblesse oblige, a little corporate responsibility has basically taken the largest sector of the US economy um, when you look at the total number of employees and the total money that's spent and, and has basically said, you guys suck. I'm putting you on notice. If you don't get your acts together, I will destroy you. That's how I interpreted what Bezos and Buffett and Diamond did. It'll be interesting to see what the insurance companies do in response, how fast or slow they start cleaning their act up. And if they're not lightning fast, I don't want to be on the other side of any trade that Bezos is making. I don't want to take the I don't want him as a counterparty. I want to be on the same side of the trade as him because uh, read Scott Galloway's book The Four. Amazon, like Apple, every industry, every sector it's come in every new business line it's rolled out, they've absolutely destroyed their competition. Now, they did a phone and it didn't work and they did a tablet and it's not a big deal. And Bezos has come out and said, we need to fail more, we need to try more things, see what works and we'll keep iterating and what works we'll keep doing and what doesn't work we'll move beyond. So. He's not the sort of guy who plays it safe and says, let's not try that, because it's a black eye if it doesn't work. He's like, no, try more. Keep throwing stuff up against the wall. Whatever doesn't work, we'll forget about. I recently, when we, we moved into a new office, we ordered a television, and how are we gonna get this installed? I know we'll use Amazon Home Services. Not only did they deliver the TV, but it was 100 bucks, they hung it on the wall. If I'm gonna call, One of their competitors or an electrician, it's a three, four, $500 job. They are trying all sorts of really interesting things and the ones that work out are gonna be billion dollar product lines for them. Whether that's insurance and prescription drugs, nobody can tell, but I'm glad I'm not in the business of selling health insurance and or prescription drugs because I don't wanna be fighting uh, Jeff Bezos on anything. Full disclosure: I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening
0: to Barry Ritholtz. He's chairman and chief investment officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management. Uh, you've read him in the Washington Post. He's on Bloomberg View. He is uh, a, a veritable macher of Midtown Manhattan. Uh, I do want to talk about your shop, Barry, because as I as I discussed at the very top of the show, the intro, this kind of emerged from the primeval, primordial ooze of the Great Recession. I started really seeing your byline around 2008 and 2009. And it was so timely. It, it, everybody had this hunger, uh, this, this unquenchable, unslakeable thirst to kind of try to get their hands around what the hell was happening with uh, Wall Street, with Citigroup, with TARP, uh, with, with all this kind of crisscrossing headlines and shovel-ready. I mean, it seems like a, a distant hallucination now, but it was very real back then. And take me back to that time and how uh, you had the inception of your firm and, and now with its you know, pretty breakneck speed of growth.
1: Uh, good times, those were a uh, really fascinating period. Uh, so uh, I've been a big consumer of media and news and other stuff for, for a long time, and as we were heading into the Great Recession, 04, 05, 06, 07, it was pretty clear that market um, following the dot-com crash had had bottomed in 03, and things were starting to move higher, And um, it was pretty clear that there were all these cracks in the facade if you looked at some of the data. And the mainstream media did really a terrible job analyzing what was going on. From from the lows in 03 till I want to say the peak in October 07, the market was up about ninety-four percent. During that move higher, anybody who talked about, um, gee, you know, we haven't seen an increase in, in income in, in real terms and a, a decade, and yet housing prices have doubled. That's, that's a problem. Or look at the ratio of home prices to GDP. How has this gone through the roof like that? That's been a steady relationship, total value of all the houses in the U.S. to total value of the gross domestic product. Suddenly, it, it doubles and triples. So if you were looking in the right place, uh, I used to call this the, um, the Leaping Dolphin. Remember those silly 3D posters that you had to squint? Sure. I- and suddenly, if you looked at it just right, you would see an image that wasn't visible. Otherwise, well, the financial crisis before it exploded, it was pretty clear that something was uh, afoot at the Circle K. And so when you when you started delving into it, and I think most people did not, but when you started Delving into it, you quickly came to the um, experience. You quickly found the data that, gee, we've really changed the underlying basis for making loans for for houses. And I'll never forget the first house I bought was this tiny little um, 1926 uh, home with a, a little porch out front, and I want to say it was like 04. We did a refinance on it. And I'm not exaggerating when I say the maybe it was oh five, but we the guy pulled up into our driveway, flung the door open, I and you could hear, you know, going down our porch, knock on the door hi, we've been waiting for you. And the guy came in, sat at our dining room table and said, listen, I have a closing about two miles away that starts in three minutes. I don't have time. Sign, sign, initial, initial. Here's your check. Got to go. And he ran out the door, left us (laughs) with a check for, wait, my payment is $200 a month lower and I have a $30,000 check at the end of this. And I remember looking at my wife and saying, this does not end well. I very vividly have a recollection. That was no later than '05, And maybe that was a little bit of a spur to start digging deeper into it. But once we discovered what was going on, it was pretty clear, um, hey, this is gonna end and end badly. Let's wait for the market to give us a signal. That was the hardest thing about that period of saying, this is gonna crash, but not yet. So you have to stay long with it. And we ended up moving pretty much to all cash in January uh, 1. That was a very different type of firm. That was a more institutional trading mm. firm back then. But it was pretty clear coming out of it that people needed more than just trading advice. They needed holistic financial planning. They needed uh, somebody to really hold their hand and tell them exactly what to do. Um, when, when we came out of the... Uh, collapse, and basically every indicator that we track said, all right, this is about as bad as it gets, so maybe you're a little early, but hey, you just missed 8,000 points to the downside. On the Dow, you can afford to be a little early. It turned out uh, we, we got very lucky with our timing, but nobody wanted to believe it. And and uh, you know I've been a fan of behavioral economics and, and cognitive issues for decades. But, man, that was a masterclass in how people's biases, how their emotional state affects what they do with their money. You could not convince most people to be back in the market in early 2009, throughout the whole year, and the same in 2010. The average person looked at you like you had two heads when you said, All right, here's where you could buy stocks. What? Mm. What are you kidding? No, no, it's Dow sixty five hundred, we're going to three thousand. I can't tell you how many people said stuff like that. Well, even if you do, you just missed a nine thousand point drop. Take a risk that you maybe you're gonna get cut in half again after a fifty-seven percent drop, which by the way, was the exact just about the exact same drop that we saw in the worst. Bear Market of the 1970s, the 1973-74 collapse. But Barry, I mean that
0: that that again is is such a dis. I'm trying to get back in touch with that pain and terror. And I just, you know, um, was talking to somebody who had left Bear Stearns and has now reinvented himself as a as a high-end clothier person. Um, There's this unbelievable diaspora of people out there. I remember where I was when I got on a computer and pulled up Yahoo Finance and saw that J.P. Morgan had agreed to a take-under of Bear Stearns for $2 a share. Do
1: you um, remember that picture of the $2 bill? The
0: $2 take bill. To and I said, the wind, wait, to $2, the door? $2, $2 bill. I mean, that to me was the tip of the iceberg tell that something is really wrong. And if this is indicative, I mean, from a kind of a mark-to-market perspective, this you realize that Lehman or someone else has to be next. There's this whole kind of food chain on Wall Street. And we're coming up on the 10th anniversary of that, but – you have, if you look at, for example, the recent uh, Luthold Green Book says that the risk aversion index is at an all-time low. We're at near all-time highs for the stock market. People don't remember what volatility is. We haven't had a 5% pullback in forever. Um, so, I don't, I, I mean, I, I I, just, I kind of miss what, what fear tastes
1: like because there is opportunity in fear, but we just haven't felt it for forever. This too shall pass. Every time looks or feels like a new um, phase, like a, oh, we're in a permanently high plateau. That sort of stuff never sticks. Markets are rarely at fair value. The only time they're, they're sort of fairly valued is when they're blowing through fair value to the upside or when they're crashing through fair value in the midst of a collapse. And so people don't understand, average is really abnormal. You're usually, either expensive or cheap. And people have a hard time wrapping their heads around, I've been hearing people say, I can't own US equities, they're expensive. I don't know, for five, six, seven years. They were, they were reasonably priced for about 25 minutes in, in March 09 and after that, they, they quickly became quote unquote pricey. So the, the fear definitely is not there. We're not, uh, it's shocking to say this, we are not yet at the point where um, the enthusiasm has gotten to a crazy extreme, and I know... Yeah, you don't know, literally
0: no one has talked to me about the stock market since the spring of 2000. I kid you not.
1: So so now there are a lot of other things that have changed in society and changed in the market that I don't think we could rely on the Joe Kennedy shoeshine boy anymore because stop and think about the average mom and pop investor. And and we'll hold aside the concept that most of the stock in the United States is owned by the top 10%. Um, so this idea that we've democratized finance is really a whole lot of nonsense. But still, a lot of people have some money in the markets. And thing about mom and pop they they come into the markets in the late 90s and they get shellacked in the dot com collapse and then they say all right i'm going to hold the stocks aside and now i'm going to buy real estate and they get shellacked in the real estate collapse and then all right this, you know commodities and gold are doing well and they pile into that that's the next thing to drop and and a certain point and we won't even we've already talked about bitcoin so we won't even go there but at a certain point mom and pop say hey you know this IPO nonsense and the analyst recommendations and the stock picking and the market timing, all of this stuff is nonsense. I'm just going to hand my money to an indexer. It'll go to Vanguard, it'll go to BlackRock, it'll go to DFA or one of those companies that essentially buys um, or offers a a broad index of stocks and says, here, hold this for the next 30 years. And when you retire, it should be worth a lot more money than what, what you paid for it. And people have kind of said, okay, that's, you know, it's like brushing your teeth. It's something you do in the background. And we've seen massive changes on Wall Street because of it. Wall Street's gotten smaller. The exceptions are certain firms that focus on this. DFA is, I think, $650 billion. Uh, Vanguard is now Four $5, and a half trillion. Trillion. five trillion. The $5 trillion, BlackRock is $6 trillion. And these are companies that have really built their names and reputation on, here, just don't 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 beat the market, be the
0: market, right? Be
1: the market, right. Stop romancing alpha and instead uh, go after beta, which is the Wall Street Greek terminology for alpha is outperformance, beta is what the market gives you. Hey, just take what the market gives you because history shows us the people who try and beat the market, actually end up, after everything is said and done, underperforming the market. So
0: then, Barry, what are you guys at Ritholtz Wealth uh, selling? What is the the foot-in-the-door approach? I stand back, and I'm really impressed with which you've kind of blanketed Bloomberg. I see Josh Brown on CNBC. I see some really thoughtful dispatches from him and uh, Batnick.
1: And you know, Carlson, Michael Batnick is our head of research. and right. Carlson is our is, head of institutional. So what,
0: what is the what is the? I, I don't. I wouldn't say a thirty second uh. elevator pitch, but what what kind of hand holding is needed? Because look at Vanguard. We did sure. say five trillion in global assets under management, a 0.12% percent asset weighted fund expense on average. I mean,
1: who can compete with that? So, don't don't fight them. Join them. So, everything we do starts with the concept of. We're effectively educators and we come out and we say, you guys are all doing this wrong, meaning you, the mom and pop people, you, the people who have been stock picking and market timing and playing with all sorts of stuff. Not that you can't beat the market. Of course, some people can. That's the lure that keeps pulling people in. Uh, what we've been, look, I've been blogging since the late 90s. That's shocking. It's 20 years, first on GeoCities and then on, on um uh, TypePad and now on WordPress. And the message that I've been telling people and the Josh and Mike and Ben have similarly been telling people is, hey, if you want to do it yourself, here's what you have to do. You could do it yourself, but it takes a little bit of work and it takes a lot of discipline and you have to understand what's going on and all the distractions that will lead you astray. So Own a broad index of low-cost. Own a broad portfolio of low-cost global indices. Rebalance once a year. Keep adding money to it as uh, as the months go by. Every time you get a raise, increase the amount of money you are doing it. And you could do it yourself. That is the message we've been we started with. The what really came about because clients reach and prospective clients reached out to us was, hey, I really like the story you guys are telling, but I'm a busy guy, I'm running a fill in the blank, I'm running a business, I'm running a practice, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. I don't have time, you guys do it. Uh, okay, so so that kinda is how we turned from a a loose confederacy of Blogs and educators and advocates on behalf of investors. To all right, we'll manage money for people, and we um, when we started, like everything else, we do. We do a lot of research. We look at a lot of data. When we began uh, our office, uh, we started researching the business of managing money, and we quickly found, oh, this is really an odd little business. Nobody wants to pay attention to the small investors. So we set up a long before it was chic we set up a low cost automated uh, advisor we call liftoff in order to take our same approach and and allow people who don't have a million dollars to participate in in our models and then we started researching what led people to make investing mistakes and time and again it came back to behavior so we came up with a series of steps to take what we learned about behavior and integrate it into a wealth management practice. I'll give you two short samples. One is we set up a um, th- that traditional global low-cost index portfolio. Mm-hmm. That's our core portfolio. But given how people have a tendency to panic when the market really gets shellacked, we set up a, another portfolio. It's only supposed to be 20 or so percent of their holdings. That basically was designed not to beat the market, but when the market gets shellacked to move from stocks to bonds, and we're never gonna catch the exact top, and we're not gonna catch the exact bottom, but if we were to see another 08, 09, the goal is to miss 60, 70, 80% of that collapse. The purpose of that is so that people leave their main portfolio alone. Hey, we don't know if we're gonna get this just right, but if we miss enough of it, you're more likely to leave your portfolio alone, which so few people did during 0809. They panicked, they sold in 09. And I can't tell you how many people came to us in 2012, 2013, 2014, hey, I listened to you, I got out of the market in 08. But gee, I thought you guys were crazy in, in 2009, 2010.
0: It seemed it seems like for the longest time, at least for a year and a half or two years, we've been at this true fork in the road between, and I know this sounds cliche, I have just no other way of putting it, uh, fear and greed. It's like, yes, I can be prudent and uh, can listen to everybody who says that the sh- the Schiller cyclically adjusted PE and literally every valuation metric says that we are at crazy multiples and it's nosebleed and it's a treacherous time and the Fed can blindside us and there could be an exogenous risk. And yet Had you heeded that warning a year ago, you would have missed out on a monster year in the markets. And I wonder, and you go back to behavior, I think that I hate losing out on upside, missing out on upside more than I do kind of the volatility, you know, a drawdown year where maybe, what, 2008 was
1: 38 percent. Actually, the behavioral economics—the behavioral economists—will tell you that you feel the pain of downside twice as intensely as the pleasure of upside. I don't, I don't so, Barry.
0: I get, I get greedy and excited when there's downside, you, and we haven't had it for the longest time.
1: Well, maybe you should most hire Most people, most people don't. Most people are much more concerned with the downside than the upside. So, uh, when when we look at what's going on in the market. Uh, and we look at the broad economy, you could look at valuation as a factor, but if it was just as simple as saying, hey, the P-E ratio is low, we should buy. Oh wait, the P-E ratio is high, we should sell. Turns out that a single indicator isn't sufficient. So we wanna now look at other things to put that into context. What happens when valuation is high and, and inflation is low and interest rates are low? Well, it turns out that's good for the stock market. What happens when valuation is high and inflation is high and interest rates are high? Well, it turns out that's terrible for the stock market. So we have a low inflation environment and a low rate environment, but inflation is just starting to tick up and rates according to the Fed are moving higher. So I can't tell you when this ends, but if history is a guide, there's a good couple of quarters, if not a couple of years to go. The economy seems to be doing well. We're con- we have for the past, since 2010, for the past eight years, continually created uh, more jobs. Wages are finally starting to tick up. Now, granted, a lot of that has to do with the minimum wage now going up in, uh, I think it's something like 18 states and 22 municipalities. Uh, the tax cuts are certainly going to course their way. Through corporate America, we'll see some uh, wage increases, some bonuses increases. What I'm more, what I expect to see more from that is companies reinvesting the money, either in capital spending or um, dividends or stock buybacks. But that a trillion and a half dollars will work its way through the economy. So you have when when someone says something and it hasn't worked for three, five, seven years, you really have to look at it askance. At well, stocks are are expensive. If you're concerned that U.S. stocks are expensive, well, European stocks are cheaper, and emerging market stocks are even cheaper. And P.S. When I first said that to people about two years ago, the standard response was European stocks. Oh, they're a debacle. Well, yeah, it was that's a great buying. Are... I mean, the same thing with emerging uh, markets. Hundred percent. Uh... And that's why people have a tendency to chase that trend and be late to the party and. You know, not that there's not more upside, but Well, Barry, sometimes... is, any, is anything
0: cheap right now opportunistically when clients uh, I would come say, up to
1: you? Sure. I would say emerging markets are cheap and Europe is reasonable. Um, bonds are expensive, but here's the thing that you have to remember. You own bonds for two reasons, not-, not Necessarily because of the yield, although it's nice when you get a little yield, you own bonds as as something to smooth out the returns uh, of stocks. Stocks swing wildly up and down. Bonds tend to correct. Not but does, swing. does fact, anybody worst...
0: remember that you can lose money in bonds? I think the last time truly was what ninety four. Is there any you have to... institutional memory or retail memory? I don't know of any bond Very traders little. who are around in ninety four.
1: There's a famous quote that that finance. Um, is um, notable for how little it rem- remembers about what comes before. But now let me point out, when you, if you own US treasuries, you know, even in the worst treasury bear market, any given year, you have a 5% drawdown. It's not like stocks. And remember, if you hold a bonds till maturity, especially a high-grade corporate or a treasury, you're gonna get your money back. The big concern with bonds Isn't volatility, it's inflation because inflation eats away at the value of bonds. You're tying up money that's worth less and less. All the time, inflation turns out to be pretty good for equities, not great for bonds.
0: I don't know what you're talking about, disco man. I don't <laughs> even know what inflation is. Don't bring that jive talk on this program. <laughs> Full disclosure, we're Polyester talking <laughs> <and> disco. <laughs> Full disclosure, we're talking to Barry Ritholtz. He's author of Bailout Nation: How Greed and Easy Money Corrupted Wall Street and Shook the World Economy. Um, he founded Ritholtz Wealth Management and was Chief Executive and Director of Equity Research at Fusion IQ. You can read him in Bloomberg View. Uh, we are uh, in the midst of a handover at the Federal Reserve and. Janet Yellen is handing off the baton to uh Trump's pick, uh Powell. And I'm curious, we've had a we've had a retired Fed governor on the show before, Al Bradis. And we posed the question, this wasn't long ago, maybe six months ago. We are at full employment, if you believe the numbers, four, four and a half percent. Close uh, to it, yeah. Right? Inflation is tame, it's under control, stock markets at an all-time high, asset. Asset classes, you know, uh, net worth doing really well. Shouldn't we take that into consideration holistically? Because if you look at the Federal Reserve's uh, Fed funds rate, compared to where it was before this malaise, we're nowhere near that. Forget about the discussion of inflation. Money still remains ridiculously cheap. I can't get anything from opening up a CD. Banks think they're doing me a favor when
1: I show up and try to give them my money. Something feels Mm -hmm. amiss. So – there is an argument to be made that we have overstated inflation or overemphasized inflation uh, last decade because of technology and because of globalization. So let's start with those two. First, we have inflation in things we we need, but we have deflation in things we want. Think about the price of computers and your phone and and. Flat screen TVs and any gadget you buy, they just get cheaper and cheaper every year. Some of that is economies of scale. Some of that is the miracle of of semiconductor manufacturing. But the things we want, they're going down in price. The things we need, a place to live, health care, food, college costs, those have all been going up in price and going up substantially. Now... So that creates a little conundrum because when you when you look at inflation, it's sort of like the six blind men describing the the elephant. It depends on what part of it you you're grabbing a tusk, an ear, the trunk, the tail. What what part you grab is going to determine what you think you're you're seeing. And so where you look in inflation kind of creates a distorted uh, perspective add to that the fact that, uh, you know, America is one of the most highly paid countries, or at least was 30 years ago, and the rest of the world was getting paid, you know, pennies or a dollar a day. That labor arbitrage, meaning, well, we're going to build this someplace else where the labor is cheap, and then we're going to send it to America where they have all this discretionary money to, to buy it, that has put a cap on increased salaries in the US for the past three decades, but it's helped raise countries like Vietnam and China and India and Turkey and parts of South America, their wages have all gone up significantly. Uh, And so that's another factor. When we look at inflation, wage inflation is really the most significant driver uh, of costs on the corporate side. And wage inflation tends to drive Cost inflation on the consumer side. So, we haven't seen that sort of increase in salaries. You're just starting to see it tick up. I don't think we're 100% full uh, employment yet. You still have plenty of people who left the labor force, lots of people working part time, and lots of people working in jobs that aren't necessarily what they were trained for, not their expertise after the financial crisis folks took a job just to have any job. So there is some uh, upside uh, for labor. We can still see some more uh, the unemployment rate go down. And one of the things we track that we really pay attention to uh, in that space is labor mobility. How often do people switch jobs? Uh, that's usually a sign that they're confident in the economy, they're confident in um, that their circumstances are good, and that somebody else is willing to pay them more money to leave a stable situation and and start a new new gig, and so uh, the, the labor market is in flux. It's really changed significantly from where it was 10 and 20 years ago, and I think that's part of the reason why the Fed has had such a hard time forecasting inflation. And really, understanding this economic recovery—it's
0: not like the Fed understood what we got into in the first place. If you go back and look at the FOMC minutes throughout 2006 and 2007, nobody saw the freight train.
1: Yeah, they were completely blindsided by it. It was it, there have been uh, Fed minutes released where people are laughing and joking, and you know, literally, uh, you could count the number of times that that they were laughing. They were wholly unaware of what was coming down the the railroad tracks at them. You know, economists as a group, by and large, miss what was coming. There are exceptions, Reinhardt and Rogoff, to to name two, who really saw this coming January 08. uh, They were talking about uh, what a credit crisis looks like. And that's the fascinating thing. Most economists use the normal recession recovery cycle as their frame of reference. That's the data set they use. But they were using the wrong, you know, they were playing the wrong game. They shouldn't have been looking at regular recessions. They should have been looking at, hey, what happens during a, a financial crisis where credit freezes? That was the proper data set, and they only discovered that error years too late. It, it they were way, way behind the curve. Um, not, not a surprise. You know, every profession has a tendency to have their own lingo and their own favorite data sources and their own favorite analytical models, their models simply were not prepared for a credit crisis.
0: Well, Barry, in the seven or eight minutes that we have left, you know, in the immortal words of uh, the DJ at um, Sunshine Skateway in North Miami, it no longer exists, but we're going freestyle, free skate. You tell me what's on your mind. You tell me what is
1: being short shrifted in the press, maybe something you're about to write. Have at it. (laughs) Oh, sure. There's so much stuff to talk about. So uh, I'm fascinated by a lot of the things that have been changing in the economy, in technology, and, and in society. Uh, and I'm also fascinated by the media coverage of all the above. You know, uh, a number of people have, have pointed out, uh, notably uh, Steve Pinker of Harvard, that there has never been a better time to be a human being alive on this planet. The the amount of wars are at their lowest level, the amount of uh, literacy is at its highest level. Um, starvation and slavery is literally at the lowest level ever in human history. Uh, there are lots of terrible diseases, but if you were gonna get a disease, well, now is the time to get it as opposed to 50 or 100 years ago. And yet, we don't perceive that because the way we evolved was to notice the bad stuff to notice the threats, hey, go back a couple of millennia. Uh, humans who didn't notice threats, well, they didn't stick around long enough to have progeny. Uh, those who were a little skittish and jumped at every possible threat, uh, they might have had a number of false positives, but they hung around long enough to reproduce and and pass those traits on. So, uh, that that sort of stuff is fascinating, and we just don't see it. Uh, I'm I'm a fond of of saying. You know, always prepare for the worst, but hope for the best. And I think that will put you in good standing, both for your portfolio and your day-to-day life. What about the
0: volatility in D.C., the fact that you cannot tune out this president or his coterie? I mean, I I look at the headlines with OPICs this morning, you know, it's Thursday morning, and it's like the gang that couldn't
1: plot straight. So yeah th- this uh, I'm I'm fascinated by that I'm I I find it kind of amusing but there are two key things to remember about this and these are both really important points as we saw in in 2017 Political volatility has nothing whatsoever to do with market volatility. You had an all-time high in political volatility in 2017. You you have to go back to, you know, wartime, World War II to see that sort of crazy politics in the media and everything else, and yet the market couldn't have been more placid. It just went higher every month. And there wasn't explosive moves higher. It just gradually marched higher. The the S&P was up almost 20% last year, a little more if you include dividends, and very, very few days where it was up 1% or more. It was just a real gradual process. We have a tendency to confuse um, presidents with economies, and we have a, a tendency to confuse politics with markets. Never the twain shall meet. Uh, uh, my favorite examples, hey, we're going to impeach a president for having an affair with an in- intern. Market's going to go up three more years. Hey, we, we're we going to have a uh, a very um, poorly thought out tax cut that's going to blow out. The deficit's not going to create jobs. Well, the market's going to go up for the next four years. Hey, we have a socialist Muslim Kenyan president. Well, guess what? The market's going to triple. And now we have this president who. You know, if you look at the never Trumpers, he's unfit, he's a a problem, he doesn't have an attention span, uh, but we just passed a trillion and a half dollar tax cut. That has a tendency to drive the markets higher. So separate politics from your investing, number one. And number two, hey, if you want to tune out the noise, it's really easy to do. Don't watch Fox or CNN. If you're on Twitter, put in your blocked words, Trump or MAGA, um, (laughs) and basically you don't have to get drawn into the nonsense. Say what you will about Trump, he is a entertaining, fascinating guy. Whether you think of that as a supporter or whether you think he's a dumpster fire, it is the sort of car crash that you can't avert your gaze from. And it's fascinating, so you have to make a decision, hey, do I want this noise in my life every day or not? I find it astonishing to watch, so it's a car wreck I can't avert my gaze from, but I never allow what's taking place in DC to affect me. In fact, the very first column I did for the Washington Post in 2011 was, here's why you should never mix politics and investing. And I think that advice is as true today as it was back then. Barry Ritholtz, repeat guest on this show. I
0: cannot throw enough PDA at you. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of what you guys have built. I I I knew you back when you were kind of emerging from the obscurity of TypePad and whatever the heck it was (laughs) back in 08 or 09. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Full disclosure, our engineer is Mr. John Valentine. Special thanks to NPR New York. Find us and like us on NPR One and on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. On Twitter, we're at FullDRadio. Facebook.com slash FullDRadio. Ask about sponsoring. Of course you could ask. Hey, listeners, you're the first, the last, my everything. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week.